0: What does it mean to be a Christian? Is it simply to profess faith in Christ regardless of how you live or what you do or what you even profess to believe about Jesus, let alone anything else that pertains to the Christian faith? Are you a Christian simply because you say so? I say, therefore I am. Well, let's go one step further. What does it mean to follow Christ? I mean, when you think about following Christ, wouldn't that mean just automatically, just intrinsically for me to follow Christ means that I don't follow anyone or anything else, including myself? That I follow him? Now, how can you know whether or not someone is a Christian? How can you know whether or not they truly follow Christ? How can someone who is on the outside, somebody who does not follow Christ, how can they look upon people and say, you know what, this guy over here, you know, he professes faith in Christ and I kind of see that, but this one over here, he professes faith in Christ, but you know, I don't know. How do they know? who follows Jesus and who doesn't and what do you base that upon because they're good people cuz they're nice cuz they're not committing really egregious sins because they're they say they are because they're involved in religious activities How can you look at someone and know whether or not they follow Jesus? Anybody having trouble just kind of answering that line of question? You know, biblically, the answers to those questions are not difficult. They're actually really, really easy to answer. God's word basically says do you want to know who is truly a Christian? who it is that truly represents salvation and the rule of Christ here on earth, then look at the church. it says, look at the church. That's how you know. And so why is it then that when we examine the churches around us, oftentimes she looks more like a harlot with divorce papers in hand than she does the bride of Christ? Why is it that she looks more like a cadaver on a slab, organs harvested, body parts everywhere, than she does a living, healthy, and mature body? Why does she, the church, look more like a dysfunctional family that hasn't spoken to each other in years and not a loving and committed group of brothers and sisters, beloved children of our Heavenly Father? Why has the flock of God Been ravaged and led astray by wolves? Why have so many of the citizens of God's kingdom defected to start kingdoms of their own? Why has the temple of God fallen into ruin? Stones leaving the walls to go and serve idols. False teaching. Poor shepherding, questioning the sufficiency of scripture, doubting God's wisdom, goodness, and kindness towards us, a loss of the meaning and purpose of the church. Yes, those are all certainly outside factors that have contributed to this confusion over who is and who is not a Christian. But friends, there are many internal factors as well. Internal factors within each and every single one of our hearts that would lead and add to this confusion. Factors like a fear of commitment, a lack of love, factors like busyness and distraction, pride, apathy towards the things of Christ, individualism, the illusion of self sufficiency. Selfishness, comfort, or convenience seeking, or simply putting ourselves before Jesus. I'm sure that we could probably list off a whole lot more. But it has been God's design and purpose for the church to be where we learn theology and how we do theology. Theology. The church was intended by God to be the place where we come to know and love the doctrine of God and how we adorn the doctrine of God. It is through the church that we come to see and to savor the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is through the church that we make the gospel of Jesus Christ visible for others to see. Do you want to know who is and who is not a Christian? Look at the church. Now this morning we are finishing up our series on local church leadership by exploring the topic of church membership. Church membership undergirds everything else that we have talked about so far in this series. Because just think about it for a minute. How can you have elders how can you have deacons? How can you even have congregationalism if you do not have a defined church membership? You can't. You simply can't. It's implicit within God's design for the church. My goal this morning is to make it a little bit more explicit for all of us. Now hear me out very clearly right here and right now. My purpose for talking about church membership is not to get you to join this church. That is not my purpose. My purpose, my reason for talking about church membership is because church membership is the way the world knows who represents Jesus. That's the main idea that I want to convey this morning. Church membership is the way the world knows who represents Jesus. And so this morning, I want to answer three questions. First of all, we've got to go back to the drawing board, answer the question, what is the church? We've got to be really clear on what that is and how that's laid out, what the purpose of the church is even for Second, we want to answer the question, where do we see church membership in scripture? It's often a question that's posed. And third, why should I commit myself to membership at a local church? So first of all, what is the church? Have you ever thought about that? Try to define what the church is? Most people would say, well, it's God's people, but God's people for what purpose? Why? Why, does, why is it a group rather than, a, a collective rather than just a bunch of individuals? Or is it just a bunch of individuals? Well, obviously, I don't agree that it's a bunch of individuals. So let's see. I want to frame this question by looking at Ephesians. So if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. It's page 979 on the Bibles, provided there in the chairs. Scripture references, most of them, not all of them, will be up here for you to find. Now, though this text speaks of a husband's relationship to his wife, Paul uses Christ's relationship to the church as a model for how husbands should love their wives. And so he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, without any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 29, if you just want to skip down there, adds that Christ cherishes the church. And so what that means is, one, the church is not a building. Christ didn't die for a building or buildings, okay? This is, this is, where we're meeting is just a gathering place. And obviously, this is not a church, right? We wouldn't pick this place if we had our options, right? But we meet here. This is a gathering place. This is where we gather together. But also, we see from this text that the church is a definite group. It's a determined number. It's not for everybody, or it's not everybody. We're not universalists here saying that Jesus died for everyone, therefore all are saved, therefore all are part of the church. We're saying he died for the church. Though Christ loved all of his creation, he loves all of his creation, Christ hates sin. He's holy, can have nothing to do with it. He died to pay the penalty for sin But there's something unique. There's something different about the way that Christ loves his church. It says that he cherishes his church. He died for his church. Now that word is is singular in this passage. And so this is speaking of all of those who have turned away from their sin and received the love of Christ by trusting in his sacrificial death on their behalf. And friends, so this is speaking of all of those, no matter when they lived or where they lived, who now love Christ and live in the hope of the resurrection. And they gather together in his name, awaiting the day, praising his name, living for him and not for themselves. This is for those who long to follow Christ, who long to be like Christ, and for those who earnestly desire to be with Christ to live in an eternal spiritual marriage union with Christ. And so that can be anyone in this room. Now let me just address all of you here, especially those who I don't know. am glad you're here this morning. This is for anybody in this room. This could be speaking of you. If you came here today feeling like an outsider, you know what? I, I don't really know Jesus. I wouldn't consider myself to be a follower of Christ. I just want you to understand that all of this, all that I've just said can be true for you this morning. And so if that's the case, if you find yourself, you know what? I'm intrigued by this Christ. I want to learn more about him. You know, I find myself gravitating towards my affections, my longings moving towards him. Let me encourage you to come and talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to somebody next to you. But let me just encourage you to respond by receiving the love of Christ this morning. You too can be part of that number, that church today. Now going back to the text itself, we also see in this passage that Christ has a specific purpose in his death for the church. Verse 26 says that he died for the church so that he might sanctify her. This is more than simply forgiving her of her sins, just like oh, I'm doing away with that sanctifying, he he died so that he might cleanse her from all of her sin, which would include her desires for sin by washing her with the water of the word. And he did that so that he might present that church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, without any such thing that she may be perfect, that that church might be holy as he is holy, set apart from sin, fully devoted to Christ, with him forever. And so the purpose, one of the purposes of the church, this definite body of believers who cherishes Christ, or who Christ cherishes, who Christ died for, and who Christ sanctified, is to display that sanctifying work in our lives together as his bride. That's part of the reason why the church exists. For us together to be holy as he is holy. And how does that happen? Through the washing of water with the word. Now since we're in Ephesians, we might as well stay here. After all, we ought to be pretty familiar with Ephesians at this point. So if you would, just flip a couple of pages back to chapter 1. In verses 15 through 23, Paul prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would see the hope to which we have been called, so that we would come to understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so that we would truly know and live in light of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. And he raised him, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and dominion. And authority above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what he's saying here is in this passage, we see that the immeasurable power of God established the kingship of Christ over every power, over every rule, over every dominion, over every authority, over every name that is named for all time. So Christ is Lord over all. He is king over all. And God placed all things under Christ's feet and he gave Christ as head over the church. And so if you are in that number that Christ died for, Jesus is your head. He is your ruler. And not just yours, he is ours. He's the head of the church. And so if Jesus is our head, that means that you are not your head. Nor am I your head. Nor is the Pope your head. Nor anyone else. Jesus is your head. We, the church, whose eyes have been enlightened to receive this hope, this inheritance, and this power, who are trusting in his resurrection, we are his body. And when we, the church, when we submit to Christ, when we live as if Christ is our head, truly, which we've all been called to do, when we put Christ first in all things, then we display his kingship over the entire cosmos. We get to display that. When we submit to Christ, people look and they see. These people believe that Jesus is Lord over all. We bear witness. Our lives present. They represent. They are the earthly representation of Jesus' lordship over all things. The one who fills all in all. There's reason number two from Ephesians for why we gather together, why there's the church. In Ephesians 3.10, just another page to the right. Paul says that the reason why we preach the gospel and we teach others about God's eternal plan of redemption, why we build up the body of Christ is so that the church might display the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Friends, you and I, what we are doing right here and right now as those who have gathered together in the name of Christ, who have committed themselves to Christ and to each other, we are displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places right here and right now. There's nothing ordinary about what we're doing. And that can only happen in the church. And then back in chapter 1, verses... 3-14. through 14. We are told that those who are in Christ have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have it now. If you are in Christ, you have all of these spiritual blessings and you have them right now in complete measure. So things like election, adoption, the forgiveness of sin, redemption, reconciliation, the abundance of God's grace, all wisdom and insight, The reality that we have been reconciled forever to God. This glorious inheritance. The Holy Spirit who has sealed us for that day. We have that and we have that now. And though this is so far beyond us, all of these tremendous blessings, we fail to really grasp just the weight of what we have been given. They are not given to make much of us. Friends, when you come to Christ, it's not... uh, You receive these amazing blessings, and it is truly a blessing, right? It is blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But that's not to make much of you. It's to make much of Him. How do I know that? Well, because four times in this passage, it says, to the praise of God's glory. Why did God give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? For the praise of God's glory. Not that you don't benefit from that because you do. But in being who we now are in Christ, we represent the glory of God to the world around us. And so you see, just from the book of Ephesians right here. That the purpose of the church, this defined group of people whom Christ cherishes and whom he died for, is to represent Jesus, his sanctifying work, his lordship, his power, his wisdom, and his glory. Now the question is, can you do that all by yourself? Can you do that as an individual apart from the church? Hmm... Yes, but barely. Not in the way that God intended. Here's what it's like. Imagine that the church is a mirror. A mirror bigger than earth itself. That is meant to reflect the glory of the sun back upon the sun. We are meant to reflect the light of the sun back upon it. That's what the church is meant to do. And to try to exist to try to go through life apart from the church is like taking that mirror bigger than the earth and smashing it onto the ground into a million and billion trillion little tiny pieces. If you take up that tiny shard of mirror and you hold it up, how much does it reflect the glory of the sun? Does it not distort the image? Can it faithfully represent the image? well, yes, you get an idea of it. And let's just say you're a really great Christian, right? You're somebody that people should look up to. Okay, so I'm a big enough shard that I can kind of hold it up like this. Does that accurately display the glory that it's meant to display? Well, it gets closer, but it's nowhere near that huge mirror. You see, only the church can do that. Only the church. So the immediate follow-up is like, okay, well, can't we just do that by being a part of the universal church? Because so far you've talked about one church. Your illustration was about of one gigantic mirror. So do we really need to commit to each other locally through membership of a local church there? Or can we just simply represent Jesus as we happen to come in contact with other people who also profess the name of Jesus? Because after all, we're a part of the universal church. Well, my first response to that is this. How do you show, how do you prove that you're part of the universal church? You do it locally, right? But let's go further, okay? Because yes, there's only one church, but are we to think of it only as one church? Well, if that's the case, then why? Why do we see the word churches 34 times in the New Testament? If there's one church and that's it, why do we have the plural? We should never have the plural in the New Testament. Why is it that we have letters that are written to specific churches and not just to all Christians? Why do we have you know, Romans, first and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Why don't we have, just like Church one, Church two, Church three, Church four, you know just in parts? Because they're written to specific churches. That word church in the New Testament, it means assembly. It means gathering, okay? This is not a a, a specifically Christian term right? Like it's become that in the American language, in English language. But prior to that, that was a common word that just meant assembly or gathering. And so just by nature, just by definition of the word, it means a group that frequently meets and gathers together in the name of Christ to represent him to the world. And friends, that can't happen as a universal body. It only happens as local gatherings. You can't gather together simultaneously with all Christians for all time from all places on the globe. You can only gather with a local body. Now, if you have questions about this, let me just encourage you. I have three copies of this book. If at the end of this sermon you still question church membership, this is my gift to you. I want you to come and take it, okay? We got three of them. If, if I run out and you still have questions, let me know. I will get you another copy. I will buy cases of this if it will help prove the point, okay? But in this book, Jonathan Lehman defines the local church this way. It is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership or more appropriately, discipleship in Christ Jesus and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances, okay? Now, where we cannot do that corporately throughout the globe in the name of Jesus to employ the keys of the kingdom to affirm and oversee one another's discipleship where we cannot preach so loud as to have the whole world here, where we cannot celebrate the baptisms of all of our Christian brothers and sisters globally or receive the Lord's Supper together universally, we can only through membership within a local congregation fulfill all that is required of the body of Christ. And that's why we have the word churches and letters written to specific churches in the New Testament. A church is a local collection of Christians committed to Christ and to each other. And it is only through our commitment to Christ and to the local church that we can truly represent who Jesus is. Now, perhaps you're not convinced So let's consider our second question. Where do you see church membership in scripture? Now, if you've been through our membership matters class, this is all gonna be pretty familiar to you, but let it just serve as a refresher, something to rejoice in because you're now a member of this church and you love it, right? Okay. (laughs) Took a little convincing there. Yeah, you guys are not representing Christ well to those who are not members right now. I just want you to know that. I love you. Okay. Uh, now, just to warn you, I'm going to move through these fairly quickly. But first of all, Scripture presents a distinction between those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. So, for example, Acts chapter 20, or, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47 You've got this whole, this is Pentecost, Peter preaches, people's consciences are convicted. They ask, what do they need to do? They need to repent and believe the gospel, right? And what happens? Those who believe were added to the church that day through believers' baptism. And what did they do? They devoted themselves to the community of faith. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were praying. They were fellowshipping together. They were breaking bread. They were serving one another. They had all things in common. In fact, it was unheard of for a first century believer not to be identified with a local church. It was unheard of. Because here's the thing, the church is its members. It's not a building. It's not some random abstract institution. The church is its members. Acts chapter five, verses 12 through 13. This is following on the heels of the whole uh, situation with Ananias and Sapphira where they were struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. It says that those who were outside the church would not join them, but they still esteemed the church very highly. And so what happened there was as a result of this, everybody knew about it and the people were faced with the decision whether or not they would join the church in Jerusalem. And this joining is more public. Right, it was a more public decision and definite than it was some informal association where it's just like, yeah, I kind of rub shoulders with them on occasion when it allows. First Corinthians chapter five, verse twelve, the whole. Uh, church discipline passage. Paul in that passage is very unconcerned about judging outsiders, but he is very concerned about it within the church. He says, who am I to judge outsiders? Is it not those who are within the church that you are to judge? Or 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 23 and 24, where Paul speaks Of how if the church gathers and all speak in tongues, outsiders or unbelievers, those who do not follow Christ, will think that they're all out of their minds. But if you prophesy, everybody can understand and experience conviction of sin and hopefully repentance in life. We could go on and on about this one, but I think that that's sufficient. Because not only do we have inside versus outside, but we also have leadership. Leadership. Scripture gives clear description of leaders within the church and the responsibility that the congregation has to then submit to them. I mean, this is what we've been dealing with for the last 5 weeks. You cannot have leadership and you cannot have submission without committed membership. The role of elders, you know we saw that in passages like Acts chapter 6 verse 4, that devote themselves to word and prayer Ephesians 4 verse 11 and following elders have the responsibility to lead, to teach, to equip, to protect, and to care for the church. And it's not just some random commitment. They're responsible for a particular group. They are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. And so it is advantageous for these leaders to know exactly who that is. Who are they responsible for? In the qualifications for elders that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Titus chapter 1, elders are to be examples in godly character and conduct. They are to have strong biblical convictions and have the competency and capability to lead and instruct the church. And these qualifications were intended to be confirmed by the church. I mean, think about that. What sense would it make? Like, if, if it's not the church and that's not a distinct group, it'd be me like me going out on the street and asking those people that just happen to be walking by, hey, do you think I'm, I'm competent to lead this church? And they're like, well, whatever, you know? It just doesn't make sense. You need to have people that know and they're invested or committed. Submission to elders. Hebrews 13, 1 Thessalonians 5. The church is called to submit to those who've been placed in leadership within the church. Deacons. So in Acts chapter six, the church also appointed deacons to serve in particular functions, right? So they brought these seven men before the church, right? And the elders appointed them to that task. In addition to leadership though, there's discipline. At times, a church must remove an unrepentant church member from its fellowship. And they're not doing that to condemn It's an act of love to protect the purity of the church and of the gospel. It's done in the hope that it might lead that person to repentance and faith and restoration in Christ and to one another. Now, here's the thing for you to consider. If there is no way for you to be excluded from the local church that you are intending, perhaps it's because you have not included yourself as the Bible intends. Because Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17 give, give a clear process for dealing with an unrepentant sinner. You go and you tell him his fault, just you and him alone. If he repents, then you've regained your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, you go and you take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of one, two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen even to them, then you take it before the church. And if he doesn't listen even to the church, then you treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in order to protect the purity of the church and the gospel message, Paul calls the Corinthian church to purge the evil person from among you. Now, the ability to exclude someone from the church presupposes that it is known who belongs to the church as a member in the first place. More examples. There's nominations and voting that we see in Scripture. How can you have nominations and voting without membership? So in Acts 6, the whole church put forward the seven men for the task of serving as deacons. They nominated them. They were affirmed by the apostles. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes concerning a man whom the, the Corinthian church had disciplined, whom they had excommunicated, and this man is now repented and he's wanting to come back into fellowship. And he says to them, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so this man's exclusion from the church was the punishment by the majority Now you cannot have a majority unless you have a definite set of people from which the majority is constituted. There's counting in scripture as well. Various times the New Testament gives record of the church counting or enrolling groups of people. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 were added to the church that day. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the total number of men within the church came to about 5,000. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, Paul gives Timothy instructions for enrolling widows on a list that are going to receive support from the church. And he writes, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. So you know this woman well. Now, while this isn't conclusive evidence for formal church membership, it is tough to imagine that the church in Ephesus would have known these women and kept a list of widows and not had any formal means of identifying everyone who belonged to the church. Another example, the imagery that we see for the church in Scripture. The New Testament uses all of these images that are meant to describe the interconnectedness or the relation of each member to the others. So for example, the church is called the body of Christ. Can you be a body member without the body? Can you take a heart, put it in a jar, and the body and the heart continue to live? No. Can you be in Christ and outside of his bride whom he wed, whom he cherishes, whom he died for? Can you be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and not be a fellow citizen with the people of God? Can you be a child of God and not have brothers and sisters? Can there be a flock of God that consists of one sheep? Can you be joined together into a holy temple in the Lord by yourself? Can you be a branch and not part of the vine? All of these images show the interconnectedness of the church, the community of faith, where life and growth and maturity in Christ is dependent upon our relationships with each other. And then that leads into the last one, one anothering. Those words, one another or each other, are used repeatedly in the New Testament to convey how the church should live in relationship with each other. They're to love one another, to serve one another, to greet one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to prefer one another, to pray for one another, to edify one another, and on and on and on it goes. And we are to do that regularly, daily, and consistently it implies a common identity and a covenantal commitment to each other. You can't one another by yourself. So think about that because all of those one another's are given in relation to a command. And so if you are not one anothering, if you are not each othering, guess what you're doing? You're disobeying the command. Just consider one, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 page 1007 in the bibles there in the chairs now i like to call this passage the garden passage because of all the lettuce we see in it that was actually for you keith and just like a garden this is the way the let us of of the church grows now pay attention to all of the pronouns okay It says, therefore, brothers, plural, right? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, let us draw near As we see the day drawing near. It befuddles me how anybody can read that individually. It's just, you're just not reading the text right at all. Friends, this cannot happen through the church universal. With all of your friends who call themselves Christians, though they are spread all over the planets. This can only happen when a local collection of Christians commit themselves to Christ and to each other to regularly meet together and to oversee each other's discipleship. This cannot happen informally. This cannot happen unintentionally. This cannot happen infrequently. And this cannot happen conveniently. It happens through church membership. Now friends, consider this for a minute. Uninvolved members or non-members confuse both real members and non-Christians as to what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be in Christ. Because membership is a church's corporate endorsement of a person's faith and baptism. Just like I talked about last week with the embassy illustration, it is an authoritative corporate affirmation of one's salvation and true allegiance to their new king, Jesus Christ. How can a congregation honestly testify that someone who is uninvolved or practically invisible to the church is faithfully running the race? They can't. Church membership is how we, the church, affirm who are truly citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so now that we've defined the church and its purposes and we've identified biblical evidence for church membership, we need to answer the third question, which is why should I commit myself to membership in a local church? Now, I think that if we sat down long enough, we could identify many answers to that question. But I'm just going to highlight five from nine marks of a healthy church. The first is to assure ourselves Now, we don't join the church in order to be saved, but joining the church can help us to make certain that we are saved. Now, it's easy for us to fool ourselves into thinking that we are Christians because at one time we made a tearful decision or that we made that anxious trek up to the front of the church to talk to the pastor and pray the sinner's prayer during that invitation that went on forever, right? Did you ever do that? Seemed familiar with that. But over time, our emotions for God wane. We become distracted. We grow cold. Perhaps we even begin to question the authenticity of our salvation. But friends, this is one of the reasons why Christ gave us the church so that we could actually link arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another to remind one another of the truths of the gospel, to help one another to see, look, God is at work among us. Here's evidence of his grace right here. This is why we gather together and we commit towards pursuing and building one another up towards maturity in Christ, to holding one another accountable to our profession of faith. In church membership, we are asking our brothers and sisters around us to make sure that we live according to the words that we speak with our mouths. We'd say, look, I know that it's really easy for me to affirm that I believe this, but oh, how prone I am to live in a way that's contrary to my profession." church membership, if we're committed to it, enables us, it allows us to come alongside and help one another to live consistently with the words that we proclaim. Friends, there is no one here ever, there's no one ever who is holy enough that you don't need that. If you actually believe that, I'm sorry to tell you, but you are proud and naive. Again, I go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Apart from the church, we are children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes, even within our own hearts. But when we commit ourselves to fulfill our mission, to fulfill our function that God has given us within the church, within the body of Christ, when we actually all participate in that, what happens? The body grows towards maturity in Christ. And we do that together. This is how we can truly know that we have a vital relationship with Christ that transforms not just our lives, but the lives of those around us. You see, it's not just about you. Do you truly love Christ and desire to obey his commands? That's pretty much essential. If you've read the words of Jesus, he says it over and over and over again, you must love me and obey my commands, right? Okay, so let's just consider one of Jesus' commands from John 13, verses 34 and 35, page 900, if you want to turn there. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another, and by this, all All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he's not talking about sentimental feelings or just saying, oh, yeah, I love that guy. I don't know anything about him, but I love him. That's not what he means. He means practical, tangible, expressible love, commitment to each other, right? There's a difference between me saying, you know what? I love women and I love my wife right? You get the difference there. This is how we can test whether or not we are truly his disciples. You see, understand, do you understand here that following Christ fundamentally involves how you treat other people? And that's especially true for those who are members of Christ's church. Have you covenanted together with them? Do you regularly, selflessly, and sacrificially give yourself to that? Or have you claimed to know a love from God in Christ, and yet you live in a way that contradicts that very claim? Do you claim that you know this kind of love that knows no bounds, and yet in loving others you set bounds? I'll love them this far, but no farther. Well, friends, John answers that in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, page 1023. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, and he considers hate to just be indifference and apathy. It's not just like you have to want to kill them, but indifference and apathy. If he hates his brother, then he's a liar. For he, does, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friends, membership within a local church is intended to be a testimony of our membership to the universal church so that we can actually and visibly and faithfully link arms together in love the commitment of our lives together gives assurance to ourselves and to each other that we are truly from God. A second reason why you should join the local church is to evangelize the world. We have been called by Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, a task that is impossible for individuals to achieve. Right. It's overwhelming to think that you, one person, go out and do all of that. But when we act together, we can spread the gospel both at home and abroad. As we pray for the lost, as we pray for churches and for missionaries and church planters throughout the world, as we cooperatively give to fund global gospel ministry, as we train up and send out brothers and sisters to spread the good news as they go, wherever they go, we participate in Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations. And, and, We also evangelize the world through church membership itself, simply by being faithful church members. What are you talking about, Chet? Well, here, right? You see, church membership helps make the gospel visible by clarifying who is and who is not a Christian. There's one. Through active, regenerate church membership, we demonstrate that the gospel is a life-transforming message, that those who are once dead in their sin... Just like you and me, like all of us, have been made alive in Christ and are now together growing as better reflections of who Jesus is. And as we build one another up and as we hold one another accountable, our lives together display that the gospel is, has transforming power to actually change lives. And we've seen it in one another. We can give testimony to all that God has done in and among us when we truly love one another. We obey gospel commands and our community becomes compelling to those who do not know Christ. And when we truly love others with the love of Christ, we love people that are totally different from us. And we love them because of Christ. And that displays the power of the gospel to unite people who in the world would be divided right? Whether rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, no matter what ethnicity, man or woman, slave, free, young, old, these people who were once formally divided by any number of social barriers have come together inexplicably. And the people of Christ and having nothing in common, but Christ, that means everything. Guys, that is glorious. The world has no explanation for that. And it is appealing to those who do not know him, to see that kind of community. Those people loving each other in that way. Those who do not know Christ, they need to see that and they need to see that in us. A third reason to join the local church is to expose false gospels. The church is meant to be those who have been identified and set apart by the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, who gather around the proclamation of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, to be changed by the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we might adorn the one true gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives. In gathering together as a local church, we show the world what Christianity really is. Through our teaching and preaching and worship and prayer, we debunk messages and images that may profess to be Christian, but really are not. And friends, it is so important today because many profess to be Christians, but actually live for false gospels. Perhaps they're legalistic and they believe that their good works or their religious activities can save them. That as long as they put on a good show, and are a good person that they'll get in. There are those who are licentious and believe that basically the grace of God is a get out of hell free card. That I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. I can be whatever I want. And Jesus' blood has covered all my sin. There are those who look at Christ as a means of gain. Who think that the gospel really boils down to, to earthly gain, health, wealth, prosperity. Part of the church's mission is to recognize, defend, and to display the one true gospel of Jesus Christ and to prevent perversions of it. Part of our task in discipleship is not only to present positively the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to dismantle bad, confusing, or distorted witnesses that have raised themselves up against Christ and his true church, all the while guising themselves in the name of Christ. A fourth reason why we should join the local church is to edify or build up the church. Joining the church will help to counter that selfish individualism that is so prevalent in our culture. Friends, there are so many one another's in scripture. If we are to read and understand the Bible rightly, then we need to acknowledge that it is meant to be understood corporately and not individually. All of those used, just by default, you need to read as plural, because mo- almost all of them are. We have to, when you study the New Testament, you, when you actually look at what it's saying, you see that our Christian lives are supposed to be marked by authentic care and concern for each other. This is part of what it means for us to be a Christian. I mean, remember what I just said in First John chapter 4. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you lie. The truth of God is not in you. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how often you read your Bible or how often you darken the door of a worship service. If you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? Let me just encourage you. Go home and read 1 John today. It'll take you about 15 minutes. It will be worth your time to see this played out in the book as a whole. He talks in that book about how you must have the life together with the words if your faith is to be real. Now, outside of a covenant commitment to a local church, you cannot truly obey these one another commands, at least not in the way that God intends for you to obey them. And friends, that is especially true for passages like Hebrews 13, 17 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 regarding leaders. How can you follow Christ in obeying your leaders and submitting to them if you have no leaders over you? You can't. How can they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account if you are not submitting to them? They can't. How can our work be a joy and not a burden? How am I supposed to know who I am accountable for? How can I truly be of any advantage to you apart from you covenanting yourself to this body? I can't. And, friends, In doing that, you are disobeying every passage that speaks of leadership in the church. Every single one of them. That is disobedience to Christ because Christ gave the leaders. Now you might think that that action or that attitude is personally advantageous to you because it's a whole lot more convenient. It's a whole lot more comfortable. It's easy to do that. You can slip in and slip out. You can glean whatever you want without having to give anything of yourself to anyone else. But the truth is, it's really of no advantage to you. Just practically as a pastor, the people that I've seen in this church grow the most are those that live according to these one another's the best. And that those who profess to be a part of the church but really are failing to live in the one another's, they just wonder, why am I not growing? Why is this not happening? Why is this not taking place? Well, friends, it's because we're living in disobedience to Christ while professing his name. You're not gaining here. It's no advantage to you. You're actually losing. And what you're doing is you're harming others in the process. Friends, Christianity is completely paradoxical. Christianity says you want to gain, then give. Friends, don't let the fact that you are a sinner hinder you from being a part of the church. A lot of times I hear this over and over again, like just people feeling like they're burdens to other people. The church is comprised of redeemed sinners. And so what that means is that we are a mixed bag of blessings and curses, right? Good good attributes, gifts, and large problems. All by ourselves, we cannot maximize or grow or benefit all of those blessings within ourselves and decrease all of those problems as much as we'd like to think that we can We simply cannot. God didn't design it that way. Because if you could do that, guess what? You would be your functional savior and have no need of Jesus or his church. But God brought us together as this mixed bag of blessings and curses because I have blessings and I have problems. And I can't deal with my problems, but I can be a blessing. And so what that means is, though I can't solve everything and be perfect by myself, if I actually humble myself and I commit to love each other, I can be a blessing to Aaron and Aaron can help me with my burden. Right? And and I can help... Aaron with his burden as I'm a blessing to him. And if the, the situation is so extreme that I can't, like we can't do that for one another, guess what? We've been given a whole church who's filled with blessings, who can come around that person in all of their troubles and all of their afflictions and be a blessing to them. And guess what happens in the process? We're all blessed. We all grow to maturity in Christ. It all happens because we've invested, we've humbled ourselves and we know that we don't have it all together, but we can be that way together and grow to maturity in Christ. That's what the church is meant for. So the result is the entire body builds itself up in love. As Mark Dever points out, joining a church increases our sense of ownership of the work of the church, of its community, of its budget, and of its goals. We move from being pampered consumers to becoming joyous proprietors. We stop arriving late and complaining because we don't get exactly what we want. Instead, we arrive early and we try to help others with what they need. We must begin to view membership less as a loose affiliation, useful only on occasion, and more as a regular responsibility, becoming involved in one another's lives for the purpose of the gospel. Friends, this is why we link arms in membership. It's to build one another up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Final reason. For why you should join the local church? Is to glorify God. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12, page 1015. Peter speaks of what it means to truly be in Christ. He says, but you, that is you together, it's plural here, you together are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you together may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you together out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your plural conduct singular among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God intends for glory to come to him through the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus, when? Forever and ever. Amen. You see, church membership is not antiquated. It's not some outdated notion. You see, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be one church, and all who are within him will be members of that one church. This is how God is glorified both now and forevermore. Membership within the local church is how we get to participate in that today. Friends, Christ loves and cherishes his church. Christ died for his church. Christ promises I will build my church. And if Jesus is that committed to his church and we profess to follow him, how can we be any less committed to it? This is why if you are a Christian, you should join a local church. I'm convinced that getting this right, this topic of church membership, is the key step towards revitalizing our churches, towards evangelizing our nation, towards furthering the cause of Christ around the world, and so glorifying God our Father. And why do I think that? I think that because church membership is the way the world knows who represents Jesus.